Welcome to Access Utah. I am Sherry Quinn. In the last decade, Cache Valley Air has become too well known. A few days a year, Logan has some of the worst air pollution in the nation. Today on the program, Dr. Randy Martin, Associate Research Professor of Environmental Engineering at Utah State University, joins us to discuss the major culprit contributing to the bad air. We also explore his current research aimed at tackling the problem. The air pollution problem uh, in the Cache Valley and along the Wasatch Front, at least in the wintertime, is primarily associated with what we call PM2.5, which is particulate matter suspended in the air that has a diameter of less than 2.5 microns in diameter. Uh, the reason that number is magic, 2.5 microns, is that's the size range that you can breathe deep down into your lung tissue all the way down to the alveoli sacs where the oxygen exchange actually takes place with the blood. So that size particulate matter can get all the way down there and interfere with that oxygen transfer. Why is the problem so bad in this region with relatively low population? Both the Salt Lake area and Cache Valley are not densely populated areas compared to other areas. What is unique about these areas is we're we're mountain valleys. Uh, Cache Valley is a much narrower and almost totally enclosed mountain valley, and we have a population of around 125,000 people. Uh, Salt Lake Valley is much larger, but they are also mostly enclosed by mountains, with the exception they got the Salt Lake um, to their northwest, so they've kind of got an occasional outlet. But the importance about that is it allows the air to become trapped in both both areas. Uh, When a stagnant high-pressure system sets up over the region, we get inversions developing, and if we had snow on the ground, those inversions become even tighter and lower, so you're mixing your air pollution into a smaller volume of air. So you combine that small fixed volume of air with um, sufficient sources of air pollution and you create what can be the highest uh, PM2.5 in the nation, uh, either here in the Cache Valley or along the Wasatch Front. What are the major causes of PM2.5? In in both of these two areas, the major culprit is a, a species, what we call a secondary species, called ammonium nitrate. Ammonium nitrate is not directly emitted from anywhere, at least nowhere significant. So it's formed in the atmosphere by the presence of ammonia gas and then nitric acid. And the nitric acid comes from some very complex chemistry involving oxides of nitrogen, hydrocarbons, oxidants in the air, and sunlight. So we've got the magic amount uh, or the perfect storm of those components, the precursor components we call them, that then go on and form the ammonium nitrate. Another thing working against us here in Utah is the chemistry of ammonium nitrate is such that it is favored as the temperatures get colder and colder. So as our winters get colder and colder, the more we have greater likelihood that we're going to actually form this ammonium nitrate in the air. I understand that the Air Quality Control Board is considering banning solid-burning fuels in wood-burning stoves. Right. One of the proposals that actually came from the governor's office was to examine uh, the potential of banning solid fuel, residential solid fuel burning from November 1st all the way through March 15th, regardless of whether we're in an inverted situation or not. We do know that uh, solid fuel, primarily wood around here, but there's also some coal burning, uh, does contribute both to direct PM2.5 emissions, so you do get raw particles out of those sources, but also to the precursor gases as well, the hydrocarbons and the oxides of nitrogen. It's been uh, estimated that the 
solid fuel are somewhere around two and a half to five percent of the total particulate mass that we collect on the filters. And so that's just another mode of attack to try to uh, solve this problem. That being said, there are ordinances and regulations in place right now where you are not supposed to burn when we get to what are called the yellow and red air days. So the yellow means it's approaching the regulatory levels and red means it's exceeded the regulatory levels. So as it stands right now, we do have a mechanism to try to limit the wood stove use when the air starts to get bad. Those ordinances haven't been strongly enforced in the past. Uh, and there is some conflicting data if, about if we really know how many people are burning their wood stoves on those days. So the, the, the ban that was proposed was just an outright ban all winter season. Um, it would make it easier from an enforcement standpoint, but in my opinion, I don't see the necessity of banning those on green days when we already have a mechanism in place to limit their use during yellow and red days. But then it needs to be enforced and people need to be honest about their burning patterns. Are there alternatives for people who rely on these stoves for their primary source of heat? There are mechanisms in the ordinances for that. If, they're, if that's what they rely on, that's okay. But they should be using the best wood stove type that they can. You know, the wood stove usage of solid fuel burning runs the gamut from just a standard open fireplace, which are the worst emitters, to tightly controlled EPA certified wood stoves or pellet stoves with catalytic converters, which are very low emitters. So the alternatives, if you do have to burn, you should be using the best technology available. And that is reflected actually in industrial regulations. Industrial regulations, industrial sources of air pollutants, by law, have to use the best available control technology. And it's getting to the point, I think, now where we as residents need to follow that same logic. When do you anticipate this ban will take effect? It was a proposal that the governor had put forth, and uh, he had asked the Division of Air Quality to hold public meetings to see what the, the public thought about that. And those meetings were strongly, strongly against an overall ban. And just within the last couple of days, the state government has come out and said they're going to rethink this ban and look at what other possibilities they could have. And my, my guess is they're going to look at strengthening the enforcement on yellow days and perhaps the encouragement of wood stove change-out programs. The state of Idaho has been very successful in wood stove change-out programs, so maybe trying to find money to assist people in changing out their wood stoves to the better, cleaner, more efficient wood stoves. How do the more efficient ones work, and what, what makes them better? Well, they work by controlling um, the firebox a lot better. So they control exactly how much air is coming into them, and they, they, that way they can control the burn rate and burn hotter. They also have recirculatory systems where a lot of that flue gas then will come back into the burn box again to get recombusted. And then they have uh, catalytic converters, just like your automobile does, that will control the air pollution that is still emitted by the stove. So it's, it's really in how it burns and how it controls the airflow. And it basically just tries to get more efficient burning of the fuel source. And then controlling through the catalytic combustor any sources that escape the firebox. Can you address automobile emissions, another major contributor to air pollution? Here, here in the Cache Valley, for example, automobile emissions are the primary source of oxides of nitrogen, the NOx, into our atmosphere. Their automobiles are responsible for about ha half of the VOC emissions. We don't have any major industrial sources here in the Cache Valley we can point at. It's really us. 
now the Salt Lake, the Wasatch Front area, they do have a lot of major emission sources, but automobiles are, are, are important down there as well. So automobiles, we have to realize that they're part of the problem, so they have to be part of the solution. Here in the Cache Valley just this year, this has been the first year, well, 2014 was the first year that we had an inspections maintenance program for our automobiles here. And so we're only about halfway through that, but the failure rate that we estimated is about exactly what we're seeing in the automobile. So I think we had a pretty good idea of the benefits that we can expect from those type programs. And basically what it comes down to uh, is we as citizens have to realize that if we're going to drive, we have to drive our lowest emitting vehicles. We need to try to limit our vehicle miles traveled, uh, try to carpool, try to chip train, take mass transit when we can. Um, so we've got to realize that there are things that each individual can do to, to limit their own vehicle ex- ex- emissions exposure. It seems like it's a difficult balancing act, uh, in, especially in light of population growth. Well, it is a difficult balancing act. We do know the population is going to grow. We know it's going to double in the not-too-distant future, and, and it's going to more than double the vehicle miles traveled. Um, and so that becomes even more important that everybody analyzes you know, their driving patterns and their vehicle usage uh, behavior. There are some good news. There is some good news on the horizon, the fact that uh, the tier, thir- tier three vehicles and f- vehicle fuels are going to come online in 2017. And so that is going to help us as the population grows. The automobiles are going to be cleaner and cleaner. But that doesn't relieve us of making sure that the vehicles we're driving now and that we're going to drive for the next 10 years are still the lowest emissions that they can be. So it is a balancing act. And we just, like I say, we just got to realize that we're part of the problem. So we have to be part of the solution. Could you describe what a typical day is like for you when you're conducting your research? I don't know if there is anything such as a typical day of research. Uh, We're doing lots of different things. Just this last week, I was working with some students, and we were measuring the PM2.5 at different places within the valley just to make sure that the one measurement site that the city is running is representative of the whole valley. We've We've done that before, but it was 10 years ago. So we repeated that study on a little bit smaller scale just to verify that, uh, that, that where homogeneity uh, is, is real here in the Cache Valley. Um, and that requires then setting out samplers, making sure they all run the same time period, and uh, making sure we have all the quality controls in effect for all those samplers. Uh, on those particular cases, we're just looking at the, the mass concentration, the micrograms per cubic meter. Uh, sometimes we'll, we'll do chemical studies on the filters, and so that requires us to do a whole different set of preparation and analysis on the filters. We are gearing up to uh, look at automobile emissions in high idle areas, such as around schools and businesses, and what kind of effect does that have on the local microenvironment, if you will. Uh, we're doing uh, emission studies on automobiles of different eight years and classes to look at what the differences are between cold starts and hot starts and idles and and then drive cycles. So we're trying to get a handle on those emission parameters for vehicle fleets that are typical of the Cache Valley in wintertime scenarios. Sounds like quite a job. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot of work, but it's fun and interesting. It produces millions of lines worth of data that we have to sort through, but uh, ultimately I think we'll end up with some good results. Over the past several years, there have been a lot of 
reports comparing the air quality in Cache Valley or, or, or Salt Lake to Beijing or, or places like that? As far as the nation is concerned, we do have some of the highest PM2.5 levels recorded you know, right here in the Cache Valley or along the Wasatch Front. And there are days in a given winter where we do indeed have the worst air in the nation. Uh, but as a mode of comparison with Beijing and other places in the world, we don't even come close to having the worst air in the world. Our highest value, 24-hour value ever recorded here in Utah for a non-forest fire-related event was 137.5 micrograms per cubic meter, which is huge. That's an incredibly high value. That's almost five times the standard, uh, so it's incredibly high. But uh, last winter, or maybe it was 2013, maybe it was 2014, Beijing had a PM2.5 concentration of 886 micrograms per cubic meter. So just stratospherically different than what we see here. That's not minimizing the values we see here because they can be quite high and well into the unhealthy levels. But uh, those values seen in some of the large cities in China are just extraordinary. There's no other word to say it. Can you address the health side effects from the air pollution? Well, I can, I can only speak to the health side uh, about what I read and what I, I discussed with my colleagues who are in the health field. Um, I'm more on the pollutant side of the effect and the causes and the resulting concentrations that we see. But one of the things, I went to a talk last, last month in Salt Lake City, and one of the speakers who was on the health side of the thing, the first thing he said when he got to speak was, I'm not even sure why we're speaking because we know PM2.5 has very dramatic and very noticeable health effects at any level. There's no safe level. You can measure the impact on your lung function at any increase in the PM2.5. But we do know through lots of studies that the health side of it, the PM2.5 affects all sorts of, of health issues, everything from, from lung cancer and uh, cardiac disease to things like autism, Alzheimer, asthma, breast cancer. And I mean, it's just a huge list of all these health uh, issues that PM2.5 has a measurable and noticeable effect on. Uh, low birth weight in children, a lot of kind of scary things. And so it's something we can't ignore. There's just the, the health studies are just getting thicker and thicker as the years go on. What about the summer months? Can you also get yellow and red days? The summer, we, we can get into yellow and red. Generally, it's not for PM2.5, however. Um, this is where, for PM2.5, in, in, the, in the Utah area, I should say, uh, if we do see high elevated levels in the summer, it's usually due to long-range transport of fire, large-scale forest fires. Uh, from the northwest, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, Montana, we'll see the fires plume come down into here, and, and some Utah fires as well. But that's long-range transport. Uh, what we tend to see in the summertime, uh, not so much in Cache Valley, but along uh, the Wasatch Front, is ozone issues. And ozone is also a very powerful pollutant with very well-known health effects. So it becomes a different type of pollutant. And the reason being is ozone is generally uh, formed with, when you have lots of sunlight available. And so that is typically in the summer. Although there are places in the western United States where we're starting to see ozone issues in the wintertime, uh, the uh, western half of Wyoming in the Pinedale Anticline area, as well as the Uinta Basin here in Utah, we have seen some extraordinary 
elevated ozone in the wintertime. And we, we think we know why. We've studied that fairly well. But that's a different type of pollutant as opposed to particles. What can we do as individuals or as a community to lessen the air pollution problem? Quite honestly, for the most part, there are, there are a few exceptions, but for the most part, industry, large-scale industry, is well-regulated at this point. Although, there, like I say, there's a few things, few places where it could be improved on, but it's, it's mostly well-regulated. I think to get to where we need to be, as I mentioned before, we all have to realize that we're all contributing to this. And so we all need to be part of the solution. It's going to cause us all to have our own little bits of pain, but we all need to realize that we can't drive as frequently as we want to. We need to drive our cleanest vehicles. We need to carpool. We need to, on days when it's a yellow or red air day, we need to not burn wood and burn propane or natural gas if you have that option, although it might be a little bit more expensive. Um, we need to just realize that every little bit that we do contributes to solving the problem. Uh, in the Cache Valley and along the Wasatch Front, we've known for quite a while that there's no one silver bullet, no one home run that we can hit that's going to solve this problem. It's a bunch of small pieces that we have to take care of in order to minimize our air pollution. So you feel pretty good about the industry regulations? In general, I mean, like I say, there's, there's a few exceptions out there, and the, the industry needs to realize that they're part of the solution as well. But industry is where we've gone for regulations for the past 40 years for the most part. And now we've got to start picking with some of that slack. Where do you see the direction of future legislation going and what are lawmakers discussing in, in order to combat this problem? You know, from my biased and selfish perspective, I was really appreciative that the legislature put out some money to do research on air pollution in Utah uh, last year, and I hope they will do the same again this year. So from a legislative standpoint, what I'd like to see the Utah legislature do uh, one of the things is, is continued research funding. I mean, that's the only way we can get good data on our local and regional problems uh, is through locally funded research and targeted research. Um, I do think the legislature needs to put some teeth into maybe the anti-idling ordinances as well as the no-burn ordinances on yellow and red days, uh, not so much on the green days. Um, one of the interesting things that has been proposed from the state legislature is to allow the state of Utah to have regulations more stringent than the federal EPA-regulated uh, laws and regulations. And I think that would give Utah a little bit more freedom to get ahead of the problems rather than just wait for the federal government to tell us that we have a problem. So those are the kind of things I'd like to see. Are there any new technologies being pursued to uh, essentially clean the air? Well, a lot of the research we're, like the stuff we're, research we're doing right now on hot starts versus cold starts versus idle. I mean, that'll give us insight into what kind of programs we should be having. There's not any research to clean the air once it's dirty. Uh, the research is really, let's not let the air get dirty in the first place. And how do we, how do we most effectively and, and economically do that? I have my students every three or four years, just for uh, grins, look at engineering solutions to uh, blowing out the, the air in the Cache Valley, for example. What would we have to do to uh, move the air to break up the inversion? And it comes out that we need to move like something like 13 trillion square feet of cubic feet, or cubic feet of air uh, to cycle the air through an inversion event. And that would basically take all the energy generated from a nuclear power plant in order to do that within one or two days. So it becomes an exercise in 
feudal engineering, if you will. I mean, we could physically do it, but there's no way you could economically do it. What's coming up on this issue and, and what's next for you? A lot of it's still in, in the works, so nothing, I mean, stay tuned. Uh, we'll finish up our automobile measurements in the next couple of months, and we'll get those out as soon as we can. I've got a talk, uh, well, I'll be presenting a talk on that in June at the, at the Air and Waste Management Association's National Convention. That was USU engineer Dr. Randy Martin. Thanks for listening. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah.